0: Welcome to episode 67 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. We are glad you've joined us. Now, I hope all of our listeners are doing well and you're staying safe and healthy amid this COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, It's been a long time since we have recorded an episode outside of our studios at Messiah College. So I just want to apologize in advance for the change in the sound quality. Hopefully when we get back into the studio, we'll get up to our normal standards of uh, audio quality. As you might imagine, the college is shut down and we are doing our best to keep things going. After taking the month of April off, I think we have finally figured things out. Shout out to Casey Lehman for all her hard work in bringing this episode to fruition during quarantine, uh, trying to transform this Zoom discussion into a podcast. And I would encourage everyone to stay tuned. In order to honor our commitment to our patrons, we'll be doing episodes throughout the summer. We already have a few interviews lined up with some great guests and some great historians. So for now, we are recording this episode from my quarantine bunker down here in the basement of my house in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I have been trying as this coronavirus goes on, this pandemic goes on, this quarantine goes on, I've been trying to find some silver lining. Sometimes I'm more successful than others. I mean, for example, online teaching is, is not defi- is definitely not the same as teaching face-to-face. That's one thing I've learned. One good thing is I've had a lot of opportunities to do some more reading. Some of you who have been following the blog have seen, I picked up with the Commonplace book a little bit more. I've also had the blessing of spending more time than I would normally get with my daughters who have both been home since March, and one of my daughters, Allison, is a senior history and psychology major. She goes to college at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. She was supposed to graduate in May, which is probably like this week I think she was supposed to graduate. Now her commencement ceremony has been pushed back to October. She is going to head back to Grand Rapids, though, in a couple of days. You know, her housemates are missing her. So, what I thought I would do today is I asked her to come on the podcast with me, and she graciously agreed. So, Allison, Allie, welcome to the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast.
1: Thanks, Dad. I'm excited to be on.
0: Tell us a couple of quick questions for our audience since you haven't had a chance to talk to them before. What's it been like spending the last months of your senior year of college at home?
1: Well, it's definitely been interesting. I've been a little sad that a lot of things got canceled. But honestly, I haven't been home for this long in four years. So it's been kind of nice to spend time with family and, you know, just hang out around Mechanicsburg
0: but quarantined around Mechanicsburg, right? It's been good for us too. Me and your mom, you know, I was listening to Andrew Cuomo talk about his daughters being home, the governor of New York. It's kind of like a special gift and blessing to have you guys home for a couple months, but uh, you need to get back. You need to get back to your regular life and you're graduating, but what does next year look like?
1: Yeah, so I actually just got a job at a mental health institution near Calvin, where I'll be doing care for teenagers who have experienced abuse and trauma. So I'm excited about that. And then hopefully I'll do that for the next year and maybe apply to grad school. i we need to take the GRE and stuff again.
0: So. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like a gap year. Get yourself some experience. I don't know if you picked this up, but Allie has decided to go more of the psychology major route than the history major route. Who knows if this thing works out, we may uh, have her come in every now and then to co-host an episode with me, or we'll see how it goes. Give her a shout out on the social media, say, we want Allie. Keep Allie on the air with you. It's been definitely interesting combination of i think we're driving each other nuts but we're also enjoying each other's company
1: yeah i would say that's exactly right
0: and with all your social media and stuff texting and facetiming (laughs) you're able to be connected with your friends too in grand rapids Mm -hmm. and so forth so sit tight for a second we need to pay some bills al you'll stay with us for one more segment here and we'll talk a little bit more about the theme of our episode today The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. When you get a chance, head over to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. The Way of Improvement Leads Home is brought to you through the generous donations of Lisa DeGuardi, Richard Green, Ron Schooler, Kate Logan, Margaret Graves, Gretchen Adams, and Bob Beattie. And as always, thanks to Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. We are a listener-supported podcast, and we keep this going by your generous financial donations. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please head over to thewayofimprovement.com and click support, or go directly to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thewayofimprovement. The best way to spread the word about the podcast, of course, is to tell a friend, and you can follow us at T W O I L H podcast on twitter and you can also follow us on facebook if you like an episode give us a share or a retweet and consider a positive review on itunes and stitcher Today, Allie, we are going to be talking about the history of toys and the history of play. So I think maybe I know the answer to this question, but what were some of your favorite toys growing up?
1: Well, you know, I always loved board games, especially Monopoly, even though you would always beat me and Caroline every single time. (laughs)
0: There were many emotional (laughs) Monopoly games, as I would try to crush you and control the board, and we often lead to tears and so forth. But you guys have become pretty good Monopoly players, though, as a result of this.
1: Yeah, that is true. Uh, any others? Yeah, I always loved playing with stuffed animals, definitely dress-up clothes. Yeah,
0: we used to have an entire wardrobe of dress up clothes. I remember talking to um, a Valparaiso University theology professor Dorothy Bass and telling her about the way my kids used to dress up when they were little and she used to always be like, that's so important. That's <laughs> so important that girls have their dress up clothes. I think, Allie, you might find this episode then to be very interesting, especially in your reference to Monopoly, but also some other things. We are going to talk today to Susan Fletcher, a public historian who has written a really interesting book titled Exploring Childhood and Play Through 50 Historic Treasures. Susan tells the stories of some of the beloved toys and games Americans have played with and played since the 1840s. So virtually everything is covered in this book. Yes, Allie, Monopoly. Candyland, Crayola Crayons, Play-Doh, Etch-a-Sketch, Viewmaster, Care Bears, also Rector sets, Legos, Cabbage Patch Kids. She even has a chapter on the Little Green Army Men. She has a chapter on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Jump Rope, Hula Hoops, Chemistry sets, Pac-Man, Tetris, Super Mario Brothers, and then many, many others. It's a real treasure trove of products, and Susan brings these toys and games into conversation with some of the best scholarship in American history and culture.
1: This sounds like a really cool book.
0: Yeah, it is. When Roman and Little Publishers send me a copy, I'll have to send it to you out in Grand Rapids.
1: Yeah, I would love that.
0: Well, Allie, it's almost time for our guest. Hey, thanks for stopping by.
1: Thanks for having me, Dad.
0: Our guest today is Susan Fletcher. She is a public historian, writer, and artist. She serves as the director of history and archives for the Navigators and Glen Erie in Colorado Springs. She is also the founder and CEO of History Joy Consulting, an archives and museum consulting firm. Fletcher earned her M.A. in history from Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, or IUPUI, and she is the co-author of Dawson Troutman in his own words, and has written numerous chapters on state and local history for the Pikes Peak Regional History book series. In addition to her scholarly work, her writing appears in Springs Magazine and the Colorado Collective. Susan Fletcher. She is the author of a fascinating new book titled Exploring Childhood and Play Through 50 Historic Treasures, published this year by Roman and Littlefield Publishers. Welcome to the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, Susan. Well,
2: thank you. Thank you for having me today.
0: Before we dive into the book, tell us a little bit more about your work out there in Colorado Springs, your work as a public historian and the sort of things you do when you're not writing great history books about childhood toys.
2: Well, I'm the director of history and archives for The Navigators. The Navigators is a parachurch ministry that has branches all over the world. So as a director of history and archives, I take care of their archival collections, I do oral history interviews, we do exhibits, I give lectures to the community. The Navigators also own and operate Glen Erie, which is a historic site here in Colorado Springs. So I get to do quite a bit of local history as well.
0: So do you give tours and things of Glen Erie?
2: I do, we have a volunteer department that handles our day-to-day tours, but I'll give VIP tours and some special tours. Sometimes.
0: I know we have a lot of listeners who enjoy sort of the history of the church, history of sort of American evangelicalism and these kinds of things. What kind of things could they find? Um, is The Navigator's a place where they can come and visit and look at sort of materials and so forth? Or what kind of things could they find in your collection?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So our archives are open for researchers. Uh, You have to make an appointment to use the collections, but you can contact me and make an appointment. So The Navigators was founded by a man named Dawson Trotman. Dawson Trotman is considered to be the father of the modern discipleship movement. So we've had lots of PhD candidates come do their dissertations on Dawson Trotman, his discipleship methods. The Navigators also have a strong, connection to World War II. The ministry was founded in 1933 as a ministry to sailors aboard the USS West Virginia. And so into the 1940s, we had a strong military presence and thus went through the war along with the rest of the U.S. military. So we have a strong collection of World War II materials, stuff like that. I should also say we have a strong collection of foreign missions materials as well.
0: For those who are unfamiliar with the Navigators, you know, what sort of us insiders sometimes referred to as a para-church right, organization and largely active on college campuses.
2: Absolutely yeah the navigators are located on college campuses around the world um, yeah. many in the United States and in several other countries as well.
0: So you think about in terms of places, you know ministries like intervarsity or Campus crusade or navigators you know for those listeners who may be unfamiliar with it but they also own this beautiful what would you say it's Glenria Park you know how oh. would you describe it?
2: Yeah, we call Glenaria castle. Glenaria is the estate that the founder of Colorado Springs, General Palmer, he built that in the 1870s. And so it consists of an English Tudor revival manor house, several outbuildings and acres of some of the most beautiful property in Colorado.
0: Yeah, so if you've been to Colorado Springs, you may have actually been on Navigator's land without really knowing it, because Glen Erie I mean, is the castle, too. is a sort of tourist attraction in the city. Let's talk a little bit about your book. This is a wonderful work in the kind of genre of public history. You discuss and give sort of the historical background between 50 different toys and playthings, As I said in the introduction, there's something there for everybody. As someone who works for the Navigators, we don't really think of people who are historians of religion studying toys, right? How did you get interested in the topic?
2: I got interested in that topic when I was in my master's program. I wrote my master's thesis about childhood in the 19th century. I've been interested in the history of childhood, the history of toys for a long time. So this is kind of coming back to some of my original research interests. I love doing the history of American religion and the history of the Navigators, but this was kind of returning to a passion that I've had for a long time.
0: To what extent is this a revision of your master's thesis, or was this something that you had to develop a lot further to get it into book form.
2: When I was initially thinking about writing the book, I really thought that I could use more of my thesis for the book, but the way it's set up with talking about 50 different toys, the foundation of my thesis is here, you know, the foundation of knowing about childhood in the 19th century. But I mean, this is pretty much a complete new work.
0: And although they're short vignettes of each toy, you do make a really good effort, I think, in a way that's accessible to a sort of general readership of connecting some of these toys to sort of larger trends in scholarship, you know, whether it be kind of gender with Barbie or politics, you know, with the teddy bear or whatever. So there is an effort here, I think, to connect this. It's not just like, oh, look how fun Monopoly was to play, but rather Monopoly was kind of situated in a particular cultural and historical moment.
2: Yeah, for sure. When I was writing the book, it was really important to me, first of all, to talk about the micro history of each object, because that's interesting. But what's even more interesting is how each of these objects represents a larger aspect of American childhood. Like we mentioned Monopoly. Well, by talking about Monopoly, we can also talk about childhood in the Great Depression.
0: Let's pick that up. My daughter, Allie, was really interested in knowing more about when we were talking earlier in the podcast. Tell us a little bit about I think of Monopoly. I grew up in New Jersey. I used to occasionally visit Atlantic City. Um, I remember Atlantic City before there was gambling there. We used to go to another part of the Jersey Shore, but we loved the Atlantic City boardwalk and before casinos. So I think of Monopoly, Atlantic City, New Jersey, I kind of get nostalgic about it. But tell me a little bit more about the story behind this game.
2: For most people who play Monopoly, they may have heard the popular legend of how this game got started. So it's the middle of the Great Depression. A man named Charles Darrow is out of work and he's trying to feed his family. He's making games and puzzles and just trying to make ends meet. And he decides to invent the game Monopoly. He later sells this game to Parker Brothers and he ends up making a lot of money and retiring at a very young age. The story of how the game actually got started is a lot more complicated. And I think it speaks to the fact that almost all of the toys that we play with have roots and other toys. We'll rewind about 30 years to 1904. A Quaker woman named Elizabeth Maggie invented the landlord's game. And this game was based on Henry George's teachings on the single tax system, which might not sound very sexy to our readers. But I guess it appealed enough to Elizabeth to make the game. Apparently the game was popular amongst like economists and academics but I mean most of America would have never heard of this game. It got passed around a couple times uh, like people would introduce it to their friends and eventually Charles and Esther Darrow started playing it. That inspired them to create the game Monopoly. That's actually how the game got started.
0: What was the connection into Atlantic City where the Darrow's from Atlantic City? It
2: seems like the Darrow's were from Philadelphia, actually.
0: Okay. Well, that would have made sense because Atlantic City is kind of a place where people from Philadelphia go to the beach and so forth. Sticking with the board game category here. Huh? Now, I did not realize the connections between Candyland and polio, right? That game. Tell me a little bit more about Candyland. I used to play this all the time with my kids. Well, I think Candyland
2: is a perfect game to talk about during this time of pandemic. Candyland was invented during the polio epidemic of the late 1940s and early 1950s. In 1948, a California teacher named Elizabeth Abbott contracted polio. You know, when we think of polio, we typically think of it afflicting children, but adults could get it as well. And she contracted the disease. And while she was in the hospital recovering, she created this simple little race game for some of the younger patients in the hospital. This was a way to keep them occupied, to keep their minds off of what they were going through, and it didn't require a lot of mental energy. So patients who were very sick could play it and have fun. So she invented that in 1948, and then some of her friends sent her initial sketches to the Milton Bradley Company, and they published the game in 1949.
0: There you go. If you're at home, quarantined, be creative, right? Come up with a game like Candy Land, right? Yeah, absolutely. Let's move to some political history here. I think Allie, my daughter, mentioned the teddy bear too. I asked her what her favorite toys were, and one of them she said was stuffed animals and particularly teddy bears. And again, she hadn't read the book, so she was on here to some of the ones I wanted to ask you about. Now, I think many people might know this, but there might be some who don't, right? Tell us how the teddy bear kind of intersects with presidential history.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So like the Monopoly story, most people have a basic understanding of how the teddy bear got started. So the story goes in November of 1902, President Theodore Roosevelt is out hunting. He's on a hunting trip in Mississippi. And according to the teddy bear legend, he hasn't seen any bears. And one of his aides, his hunting guide finally finds a bear for him and they tie it to a tree. And they bring the president over and he is supposed to shoot this bear. And he refuses to do that because that's unsportsmanlike. The reality of the story is a little bit more gruesome. As I detail in the book, there was a bear that they found and cornered and tied to the tree was uh, actually like a vicious bear. It had killed some of the hunting dogs. So it was not this cute, cuddly little thing. It was this very dangerous creature. But either way, the president refused to kill the bear. News of this reaches back to New York. This is all over the press. People are very impressed with the president's compassion. And news reaches Morris Mitchum, who is a shop owner in New York. And he gets his wife, Rose, to sew a stuffed toy bear. And they start selling this in their shop. It immediately becomes popular. According to legend, Morris Mitchum writes a letter to Theodore Roosevelt and asks him if he could use his name for the bears. And so they start calling these little toy bears, Teddy's bears.
0: I didn't realize that the bear tied to a tree story, but yeah, that's great. Now, when I was a kid, I'm aging myself a little bit here, but I used to have this kind of oval container of building kind of blocks that lock together called Lincoln Logs. And until I read your book, I just assumed that they were automatically named after... You know Abraham Lincoln, a kind of log splitter candidate, but actually the connection is actually closer to the architect Frank Lloyd Wright than Lincoln. Uh, Although it's hard to tell, you know exactly who they're named after. Tell us a little bit about the Lincoln log. Some of the older listeners, right, like me, uh, might might be curious about this childhood toy that they played with.
2: Yeah, I think so. The origin story of Lincoln Logs is fascinating to me. Um, Frank Lloyd Wright had several children and one of his sons name was John. Um, So John grew up in the Frank Lloyd Wright household. And uh, when he was a a small boy, his father abandoned them. So Frank Lloyd Wright abandoned his family, his wife and his children. And, um, you know, like runs off um, to pursue his you know, another life. So John grows up, um, kind of in the shadow of his father who has abandoned the family. Uh, John decides that he is going to become an architect too. And at one point he goes over to Tokyo to help his father build the Imperial Hotel. So while John is in Tokyo, he sees um, the iconic Japanese architecture, the interlocking beams um, that we think of when we think of uh, Japanese uh, traditional styles of building. And um, when he comes back to the United States, his father fires him from this project. Um, So when he comes back to the United States, he's trying to figure out what to do with himself and inspired by uh, that Japanese style of interlocking beams, he decides that he's going to create a children's toy Um, This was in the early 19th century when construction toys were incredibly popular. So this is when uh, the erector set and tinker toys were just incredibly hot toys. Um, People liked construction toys because they cultivated uh, spatial awareness. Um, They thought that, you know, especially boys who grew up playing with architectural toys could grow up to become architects themselves and could have a useful future.
0: You, um, so, so are they named after Lincoln or not?
2: That's a great question. Um, so Frank Lloyd Wright's real middle name was Lincoln. Okay. So we're not sure if Lincoln logs were named after President Lincoln or if they were named after Frank Lloyd Wright's real middle
1: name.
0: Yeah, that's that was really intriguing to me, um, and uh, you know, it, it just brings back memories too of, of the. I mean, you have a chapter in here on even wooden blocks and Erector sets. Um, you know, Lincoln Logs are just one representative, and of course, you have uh, you. I think you end that section of the book with uh, uh, with the, with Legos, right? Which Thank were you. currently yeah. all the rage, right? Um, you can almost write. It seems like you can almost write a whole book about sort of masculinity, uh, boys' masculinity. And um, and and building toys, right? Yeah. Um, speaking of gender, right, uh, no discussion, I think, of, of toys in 20th century America would be complete without uh, a discussion of Barbie, um, you know, such a such a controversial toy, especially as the image of, you know, the sort of image portrayed by Barbie kind of intersects with uh, the feminist movement in the 60s and 70s. Um, tell us a little bit more about the history behind the Barbie doll.
2: Great. Well, like many of the other toys that we've already talked about today, Barbie was based on another object. Um, so, in the nineteen fifties, a German um, gentleman's magazine named the um, the Hamburg Built Zeitung. Uh, published a comic strip called um, Lily. So Lily is this uh, comic character who is a call girl. And um, they eventually made a plastic doll um, of Lily. And this was sold in stores in Germany and throughout Europe.
3: Um,
2: So in the 1950s, Ruth Handler and her husband, her husband, Elliot, along with her children, Barbie and Ken, go on a trip to Lucerne, Switzerland, and that's where they see these lily dolls. Um, Ruth buys a few of these and brings them back home and decides that she's going to make her own version of this this lily doll. She had observed her daughter's playing, or her daughter, Barbie, playing with uh, paper dolls and fashion. And so she thought, well, why don't we make like a three dimensional fashion doll that girls can? And, you know dress up and put clothes on and shoes and all of that stuff so those are the roots of barbie
0: so barbie is based upon a german call girl doll
2: yes yeah she definitely <laughs> is
0: <laughs> that was um that were those popular do you know in germany during that period um to, to make it doll after you know this kind of a doll
2: well, they were, so these were sold in novelty stores, okay. uh, like the, the people who were buying these. Th- so these were intended for adult men to buy. Yeah. And then they, I mean, they're, they're, I mean, because they're dolls, I think, you know, children and families co-opted them. Right. But when, you know, when, when the handlers Uh, when you know ruth was making her doll she had to alter it a little bit because the the lily dolls actually are pretty sexy um you know they have these like very suggestive glances and so they had to be modified a little bit to fit um you know the the pure modern american and sensibilities
0: how Um, did um you know what uh when did barbie um become so you said barbie became a became uh on the Amer- got on the American market in the 1950s is that what she said
2: uh, she did yes
0: and then when did when did uh, they become kind of controversial or get you know wh- what was the what was the sort of history behind that
2: so Barbie has always been a little bit controversial um, but not always for the reasons that people expect so you know modern audiences are pretty familiar with you know the argument that you um, you know, Barbie and like infantile, infantile is, I don't know how to say that word. I probably shouldn't say that word. Um, so, modern American. Right, start all over. Yeah. Yeah. Modern American audiences are used to the argument that, um, you know, Barbie promotes a certain type of womanhood that's not always um, compatible with, you know, a modern sensibility. Um, so, I mean, feminists have always argued against Barbie, but also traditionally, you know, advocates of, you know, our more traditional style of um, girlhood have also argued against Barbie. So up until this point in the 1950s, most doll play um, centers around preparing girls to become mothers. So most of the dolls that children, girls especially are playing with are baby dolls. Um, there are some fashion dolls, but all of these have... Uh, very much a sense of play as preparation for the future. Barbie is really different in the fact that she is a teenager. So, you know, by playing with Barbie, girls are not necessarily learning those like nurturing skills that they would learn playing with baby dolls. So, you know, advocates of traditional motherhood uh, were also very much opposed to Barbie. So, you yeah. know, she, Barbie, Barbie gets it on both ends.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah. and then, and then I know I didn't prep you for this, um, but I'm wondering if you could just sort of answer off the top of your head. Uh, was Did Barbie predate the G.I. Joe or did the G.I. Joe come before Barbie?
2: You know, she did predate G.I. Joe. Um, the creators of G.I. Joe looked at the success of Barbie and yeah. they wanted to replicate that. They wanted something similar for boys. So... Part of Barbie's marketing scheme is known as the razor razor blade approach. So like, if you think about buying a razor, um, you like buy the razor handle at the store and then you're stuck buying razor cartridges. I mean, pretty much for the rest of your life. Right. Um, so it's the same thing with both Barbie and GI Joe. You buy the plastic doll and then you spend the rest of your childhood buying clothes and accessories and houses and all that stuff.
0: I went through I went through a maybe 2 year period or 3 year period with GI Joe where I had the to like exactly what you're talking about. There was one, I remember it was a huge thing, the GI Joe with the Kung Fu grip, it was called. Uh You could could bend his, you could bend his fingers and hands. And then there were these, all these like command modules and, you know, all kinds of vehicles and stuff that you could buy uh, for the GI Joe. And I think I must've had maybe four or five of them at one point, you know, (laughs) over the years. (laughs) Um, yeah, yeah. GI Joe was huge. Um, Let's let's stick with girls, though, right? And here, actually, I remember my sister. My sister is. Um, 10 or 12 years younger than me. Um, But I remember vividly when she got her first easy bake oven and it was like a huge moment for her, you know, to get this easy bake oven. And you know, something I can't remember, I should have asked Allison when she was here if we bought our girls at some point, easy bake ovens, but, but tell us about, um, you know, tell us about the easy bake oven. What, you know, obviously was it just marketed to girls? I mean, was it, what was it supposed to teach girls? Um, I think I have a pretty good idea, but I'm just curious if you could nuance that for me a little bit.
2: So, the Easy Bake Oven is part of a long tradition of primarily girls playing with toy kitchens and toy stoves. Um, you've probably seen some of the cast iron, like the small cast iron stoves um, that are in museums. Uh, some of those were meant as toys, and some of those were meant as um, like salesman samples. So, you know, a traveling salesman in the West didn't have to haul a stove with him, he could just carry this little model. So, the Easy Bake Oven comes from that tradition. Um, in 1963, Kenner products comes out with this toy called the safety bake oven. And um, it's designed for girls to bake real food. So most of the toy stoves available up until that time didn't actually do anything. And if you would have tried to, you know, build a real fire in them, you could have Uh, actually burn the house down so you know they so they're trying to make this oven where girls can actually do actual cooking in a way that's safe so they initially named their product the safety bake oven and the national association of broadcasters um, made them change their name uh, to something else because they thought that this toy is not actually all that safe so they changed the name to the easy bake oven
0: and um, you literally cooked right in the easy bake oven I mean you could there were recipes and so forth. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, there were recipes. Um, In the 1960s, General Mills acquired Kenner, and of course, General Mills produced um, the Betty Crocker cake mixes. So you know, in the 60s, you could buy Easy Bake ovens with like doubles doubles food cake mixes, brownie cake mixes, and um, you know, girls could produce real treats out of these ovens. Um, Kind of, I think the ironic thing about this is that the toy was marketed to girls, but a certain celebrity television chef. um, Alton Brown was actually inspired by the Easy Bake Oven that's one of the things that helped launch his um career as a chef
0: is that right so uh-huh. so there was no there was no kind of easy bake uh you know going with gender stereotypes here there was no kind of easy use barbecue grill right for <laughs> the guy or something
2: well, unfortunately not. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. this was definitely marketed towards girls and it, it was the idea that girls kind of you know this was their place right to bake and to be in the kitchen
2: yeah absolutely um like i talked about with dolls um you know cooking like playing with toy stoves is very much part of a yeah. like play as preparation for the future um right. type of thing.
0: we only have time for one more here but um uh, again, I'd encourage you all to get the book. There's so many other toys and games that you're going to be familiar with in Susan's book. But uh, this was one this was one that I first encountered on an old uh, what were they call Macintosh Apple computer back in my I think junior or senior year of college. It was this, you know. Now it looks very primitive, but it was this game everybody was playing in the late 1980s on these uh, on these Macs. I remember, at least for me, and that is the Oregon Trail. And I always, I always bring up the game Oregon Trail, even to this day when I'm talking about manifest destiny and the Oregon Trail in my U.S. history courses. And I always ask the students if, if they've ever heard of Oregon Trail. And apparently, if I'm not mistaken, this is still, I'm sure it's been modified and improved, but they all know what Oregon Trail is, you know, even some 30, 40 years, 35 years later. So uh, tell us a little bit about, for those who have never heard of it, what was Oregon Trail? And um, what do you think it is that so many students even today still connect with it?
2: Well, the Oregon Trail is a very famous computer game. Uh, it was invented in the early 1970s, which is probably a lot earlier than most people yeah, think. Yeah, so okay. Computer games having been invented. Yeah. Um, so, in the early 1970s, a group of um, college students, um, Don Raich, Ra- Ra- uh, Bill Heineman, and Paul Dillenberger, uh, were students at Carleton College, and they moved to Minnesota to do their student teaching. Um, uh, let's see, Don was a student teacher for an eighth grade U.S. history class. And he had a lesson coming up on the history of the U.S. westward migration. And he had an idea that he wanted to create a game that would help teach children about the perils of the Oregon Trail. He initially created like a board and a card game, but his roommates were, um, they, they were computer programmers. And so they helped him uh, type this they helped them him, well they helped him create um, a computer game so they entered all this information into their school's computer mainframe and then pretty soon his his students could play this game on the computer so they would type in commands so they would type out like bang bang to uh-huh. go hunting um, the game was very popular but um, you know they didn't see much of a future for it so after the end of that school year the students went on their way you know the the three of them went on to their adult lives. And then uh, pretty soon, one of them went to work for the Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium, which is MEC, um, and they uploaded the game to that system. And so that's how the game got got spread throughout um, first Minnesota and then throughout the country, um, landing on Apple IIe computers, um, being very popular in elementary schools and middle schools all over the country.
0: And it is such, I, I wonder if the, I wonder if the, um, just the theory, but, you know, the, it's so American, right? Manifest destiny, westward expansion, to sort of, you know, shape your own destiny. Um, I wonder if that accounts for the enduring um, interest uh, in this game, because again, my students uh, also tend to play it on a regular basis as well. But, um This has been incredibly informative, uh, Susan. Um, Again, the book uh, is entitled uh, Exploring Childhood and Play Through 50 Historic Treasures. Uh, Roman and Littlefield has just published this, 2020. Um, The author, Susan Fletcher, a public historian, um, has written this book, and we ha- thats who we have been talking to for the last thirty minutes or so. Susan, um, do you have? Uh, how can we? Uh, how can we get a hold of the book? Is it at the usual sites? You know, uh, usual booksellers. Um, is there any way that that people can follow you or um, follow your work?
2: For sure. You can find the book at all of the major book selling sites. Um, You can find it at the Roman and Littlefield Publishers website on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target, um, the usual places that you would find books. Um, although I will say if you can find it at your local bookseller, I would definitely encourage you to support a small business by buying it there. Uh, to know more about me and my work, um, I have a Facebook page, um Susan Fletcher Historian and Author. You can also find me at SusanFletcherCreative.com.
0: And um I just lost my train of thought. Casey, cut this out uh, when you listen to it. Um there was something else i wanted to ask you along those lines susan but it's i doubt it will oh oh um and this book is also part of the roman and littlefield series published by the um is it the um, i always get the acronym wrong american association of state and local history is that right
2: It is, yeah. This is a new series that they're coming out with. Um, This is the second book in the series. The first book, uh, which was published just last month, is Exploring Women's Suffrage, just in time for the 100th anniversary of uh, the 19th Amendment. And they have several books that will follow, uh, I think, later this year and into next year.
0: And who is the audience for this series?
2: So the audience for this series is a general audience, so the idea is that anybody could pick up this book and find something fascinating. Um, you know, like just your, every av- you know, your average everyday person off the street um, to uh, public history professionals, so people who work in museums and who might have to curate a toy exhibit or who care for these toys.
0: Yeah, as someone who read the book in manuscript, I can definitely, I definitely agree. I mean, this is one of those books that, you know, make a nice gift as well for people who, uh, who just love toys and want to even get a little bit nostalgic in some ways about their, about their childhood. Susan, thanks for your time. Um, stay safe. And uh, we appreciate you being on the podcast today. Well,
2: thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure to talk to you.
0: I thought that this was a, would be a great way to get back into the swing of things here um, after a little break after coronavirus. You know, Susan Fletcher's book is, again, I mentioned this very, uh, it will invoke nostalgia in you, uh, but it also is re- really informative. Um, some of the toys and playthings she talks about, I learned so much just, you know, sort of basic facts about uh, reading these um reading her book and learning about these uh, different things I played with uh, as a kid. So I thought this would be a kind of lighter and fun kind of public history way to kind of get us back into the swing of things here, as we begin to ramp up again uh, here now that um, now that we've actually figured out how to create these podcasts uh, during the coronavirus. Once again, I apologize for uh, the sound quality. We're doing our best. Uh, hopefully, we can get back into the studio pretty soon. And until we meet again, may your way of improvement always lead home.
3: This has been a production of The Wave Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewaveimprovement.com. The Wave Improvement Leads Home is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Check out other podcasts on the network by heading over to recordedhistory.net. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice so others may more easily find this podcast. And let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. The podcast was brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Richard Green, Margaret Graves, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, and Bob Beattie. Also, many thanks to our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Recording Studios in Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overhaul. Many thanks to our guest, Jeffrey Engel. I've been your studio engineer and producer, Casey Lehman, and your host, as always, is John Fia.